Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Every spare minute I had, I was researching online. There was nothing that was being said about this organization, you know, Product Red, that I wasn't on top of if it was searchable. But I was trying to work out how on earth do I get to someone who's a decision maker. I left no stone unturned. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to another special episode of the show. For those of you listening in the past few weeks, you'll know that we've finally relented to the many requests over time to share our own stories. Exactly. And I got to interview you the other week, Claire, and the response has been really fantastic, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been really wonderful. And I've been hearing from lots of people from my past, which has been absolutely terrific. That's so great. And I'm so glad your story is out there, you former person of the year, you. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that it's time now to get your story out there, Greta. And I can't wait to share this conversation with listeners. Uh Uh-oh. So listeners, stay tuned now to hear how Greta spent the very first part of her working career as a professional ballet dancer, how she hasn't finished high school and doesn't have an undergrad degree, but somehow managed to get an MBA and work at McKinsey's, how against all odds she managed to secure her dream job working for an overseas organization founded by Bono, and what she learned from her time on the exec teams at eBay and Sydney Opera House. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with my inventive and strategic co-host, Greta Thomas. So Greta, here we are. Indeed. I get to turn the tables on you and I get to interview you. The moment has come. I can put it off no longer. (laughs) does feel quite weird, I have to say. Yeah, it really does, especially at the beginning. Once you get going, it's not so bad. Yeah. But uh, having just been there interviewing you, yeah, mm. the very outset and sort of sounding coherent sounds a bit challenging. It <laughs> certainly is. Well, hey, well, let's just get Diving. on with it. We always say action is the way to go, right, to build your confidence. Yep. So let's just, I'll just take the ball by the horns. Okay, great. So Greta Thomas, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Well, thank you. it's great to be here on my own show with you and your show as well. (laughs) This is exciting, actually. So, Gret, as we always do, I'm going to ask you the worst question of the interview, which is, for our listeners, how would you briefly summarize what you do today if you were at a dinner party? 
So I would say I have a portfolio career. I wear a couple of hats. One is I have a leadership development business with you, Claire. Second, I co-host a podcast. Oh, that's with you, Claire. (laughs) And thirdly, I'm a board director and strategic advisor. Okay, great. Well, we know that the path to get to this portfolio career has been really interesting. And we're going to delve into that in a little bit once we've spent a little bit of time doing what we usually do, which is understanding you and where you've come from and what your childhood was like. So you were born in Wales. I was in Pembrokeshire. Yep. But then you emigrated to Perth when you were only two years old. How would you describe your childhood in Australia? I would say it was a happy childhood. It was a little bit unusual, certainly by the time I got to the age of 12. My parents' marriage wasn't really a happy one. I was an only child. We came out and my parents had a trial separation very briefly when I was about three or four, and I actually remember that. And then um, they separated for good when I was about 12, and that was quite a traumatic time. Having said that, I had two parents that loved me hugely, and I had a great childhood. I loved it as far as, you know, I can tell looking back. Absolutely. And you were actually brought up by your dad, weren't you? So how do you think that impacted you as a person? Well, I think it has impacted me in numerous ways. You know, although my dad did cook, I don't like to cook. It was really hard growing up as a teenager, not having my mum around. She lived in a different state. So what I have found is that certainly when it comes to not always just role models, but I do have quite a few female role models that have played very important roles in my life, not just my career part, but my life, I would say, to sort of support that kind of absence of my mum being around on a daily basis. Yeah. That would be one key way. And I suppose being an only child anyway, there's a degree of independence in some things uh, that in some ways I do things. And yeah, so they're probably the two key things I'd say. Yeah. And you were a very determined child, weren't you? I mean, you trained to be a ballet dancer from the age of six, I believe. Yeah. And, you know, that was nothing that was sort of planned. It was certainly my parents weren't pushy parents, but I fell in love with ballet when I was sort of six going on seven. And it's all down to the ballet teacher I think I had then. And that's probably a great example of me being inspired by an amazing woman and her name's Sandra Wise. So, I think she just infused me with a love of movement and dance and ballet. And so from the age of seven, I committed. That is what I wanted to do. And that did not change. So my entire childhood and teenage years and early adulthood, I pursued ballet. Wow. That must have been quite incredible to have one thing from a really early age that you kind of were just constantly focused on. Did it impact what you did in your childhood because you were so focused? Definitely, especially as I got older, as a sort of a teenager where it was getting really serious, you know, in terms of the sacrifices you make to become a top ballet dancer within your age group at whatever age you are. So, you know, outside school activities were minimized because I did so much ballet before and after school. You kind of get tunnel vision and you just focus on what is it going to take to be a great ballerina. Yeah, amazing. And and you did become a great ballerina. You know, you were on stages in Australia and the UK, weren't you? 
Yeah, mostly Australia. I trained in England for a while at a boarding ballet school and then I went to the Australian Ballet School and also the Academy of Performing Arts in WA. And yes, I danced professionally. I think what happened though, as I got more and more sort of advanced and into that elite group of ballet dancers in your age group, say at the age of 17, I knew I was in the top 30 in Australia or the top 20 in Australia, but I wasn't in the top five. So from the age of about 16 onwards, you kind of can see the writing on the wall and it's a healthily gradual process, I think, because for someone like myself who had wanted nothing else but then to be a ballet dancer from the age of six, if you sort of had told me overnight suddenly I couldn't be, you know, that I would have just crumbled. But I had this gradual realization process. So I was able to dance professionally. I danced with the WA Ballet Company. I danced with Australian Ballet School and the Dancers Company. But I realized I wasn't going to be the Margot Fontaine or the prima ballerina that I wanted to be. And so I started to plan an exit. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that must have been really disappointing. I mean, the amount of hard work that you put into getting that career. It wasn't disappointing. I think the key thing is because this is a gradual realization. For me, the way I saw it is I had to be able to tell my six and seven-year-old self, I gave it everything I had and I gave it every shot. And I can absolutely say that with my hand on heart. And that's the kind of person I am, I guess. Leave no stone unturned. But in that process, reality gradually dawns and that's okay over a gradual period of time. So I became excited about what lay ahead rather than what I was going to stop doing. Yeah. Wow. What a great attitude. You said it was a gradual process for you realizing that you weren't going to be the top and so you were going to move on to another career. And you decided that you wanted to move into journalism, right? But, you know, and little did you know that this would be the first of what, how many, 12 career switches, I think. (laughs) But I particularly love the story of when you moved into TV journalism, Mm -hmm. you had gone into radio journalism and then you moved into TV journalism. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, sure. And just for listeners, so one reason I chose journalism too was because it was the opposite of ballet or performing arts where you had to be so focused on one thing. You know, journalism it's a different story every day. And that just was so exciting to me. And then I went into radio because it still had that immediacy of performing. But I had always had a television presenter called Jana Vent as my sort of heroine when it came to looking at journalism role models. She was a presenter of, I think it was a current affair at the time. And she also went on to 60 Minutes. This is in Australia. Yeah, in in Australia. And so I knew that my end goal was TV reporting and potentially anchoring. So there I was, I was a radio reporter and I'd put in a job application for, uh, I think it was like an apprenticeship almost at ABC TV News. And I didn't even get an interview or anything. I was, my application was ignored. And given I was already already a radio news reporter, I thought, blimey, that's a bit harsh. So I thought, what else can I do? How can I break into television? Because of course, if you're in radio, a lot of people want to then break into TV. So I decided to write to one of the executives at Channel 9 who had been one of the founders of 60 Minutes and he had moved to Perth to head up their news and current affairs. And I'd learned to value people's time by this stage. And so I wrote to him asking if I could hire him to help me make the transition or to teach me how to become a TV reporter given I was already a radio reporter. And so then he called me up. He called you up and then what happened? He very kindly, his name was Vaughan Gentle, and he very kindly said, you don't need to pay me, um, but maybe you could buy a 
create a beer for the camera crew and why don't we meet on a Saturday, which is a quieter news day, and we will shoot some footage of you being a TV reporter and I'll give you some guidance and I'll help you make a showreel tape to be able to use in future sort of TV job interviews. And that's exactly what happened. And the minute I got that tape, I sent it off back to the ABC. They rang me up and I sort of skipped quite a lot of levels, not as an apprentice, um, but I got a job on the current affairs program, 7.30 report. Technically, I think I was an assistant producer, but I was an on-camera reporter. Amazing. And, you know, it just shows you, doesn't it, how when you actually ask people for help, how often people will be generous in how they respond? Well, I think when you furnish that request with respect and, you know, I demonstrated I respected his time and that your request is reasonable. You know, it wasn't like I was a ballet dancer saying, make me a TV reporter. I was a radio reporter already. And so when you have those ingredients and the very nature of my request showed, I think, enormous initiative probably in hindsight that, it got a great response, obviously. And yeah, I was thrilled. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Talking of initiative, which you have lots of, you then decided to go to the UK for work. And while in the UK, you got a job with a company called Nuclear Electric. There was a cunning plan behind that move, wasn't there? Well, yes, there was. So I first of all went to the UK as a reporter and then I had been introduced to different people in in the UK market. I've got close, close family in London and UK is a second home anyway. And I got approached to interview for a PR role, which is a common career step if you've been a journalist. And I was starting to feel that reporting is quite formulaic. And so the stories can feel quite repetitive over time. So I took on a sort of an issues management and PR role with a company called Nuclear Electric. I figured I would learn a lot, but the key deciding factors, you know, you had beer and free flights as a key decision factor out, so out of your first job out of uni. One of the key decision factors with this role was they were sponsoring a yacht that was going to race around the world. And my father had introduced me to sailing and I loved, I'd worked on the America's Cup and the thought of, you know, somehow getting involved and maybe even on the yacht at some point was a real appeal for me. So I took that role. Yeah. And, you know, you did manage to get yourself on, not just onto the yacht, but onto the longest leg of the round the world yacht race from South Africa to the UK. And the yacht won the actual race. Yeah. What was the experience like? It was pretty incredible. It was full on. I was the only girl. There were 14 of us on the yacht. And uh, I think it was uh, 36 days at sea nonstop with no more than about four to five hours sleep in any one chunk of time because of the watch system and you get up in the middle of the night. It was amazing. And it was, it got very stressful for a while because we were you know, this was the deciding leg of the whole round the world race. It was line ball for a while, whether we would win. We went in to the beginning of that leg as the leaders, but it was really going to be a close thing. And so tensions on the boat got very high at times, understandably, especially for those who'd been all the way around. I I was a Johnny come lately. I could just jumped on on the last leg and I was doing radio and TV reports from the boat as well for the company. So yeah, it was an amazing, an amazing experience. And how did the stress sort of come out? Well, you know, I think 
a really big lesson for me in teamwork was, you know, there we were, we were a team racing in a very intense environment. And separately though, I had this role that was given to me by the sponsor of the yacht, which was my employer. And when I was doing these news reports, they had previously been speaking to the media directly themselves, but the company wanted me to do that because I was a trained reporter. That actually created until we had like a showdown in the galley one day um, that was moderated by the skipper, some real issues just for a little while with the crew who felt like I wasn't consulting them enough. And it was a really big lesson in if you sign up to be the member of a team, you've got to be that member of that team in a sort of an environment like that anyway, a hundred percent. And there was 10 or 15% of my time where I was being an employee. And so it was a real lesson. It was a hard lesson at the time because, you know, they were kind of down on me for a while, but we got through that and we won the race and obviously all was forgotten. And, and it was an incredible, incredible experience. Yeah. Wow. I can imagine that was a very tense. It must've been then even more challenging when you, you you had this really big exhilarating time and then you moved into actually a moment well a time of great sadness yeah well I guess you know after that I knew that I didn't want to do issues management and PR for nuclear electric long term um, and because no, you'd already got your <laughs> yacht had race the, yeah I had the yacht race <laughs> under my belt but also I was an Aussie girl and uh, I thought it felt like it was getting time to come home but in particular yeah, my mum had very rare disease and she had some treatment in England while I was there for a while. And that was pretty horrific because she nearly died with the treatment. And I was called in as the next of kin to be briefed in hospital and everything. And about, I don't know, a year or maybe less than a year after I got back to Australia. Yeah. She passed away when she was just 52. Yeah. So sad. And we talked about grief and death when we talked about Chris dying in the Bali bomb, but you know, your mum dying at such an early age, how did that actually impact you? I think it's very complicated because I was raised by my dad and she wasn't always around. I had such conflicting emotions of guilt and of, you know, not being there more in her last year, say. So many different things uh, were going through my mind and it was a pretty tough time. Yeah, so challenging. And like looking back on it now, what would your advice be to someone else dealing with grief? I know every single experience is so unique and different, but what would your what would your advice be? Well, I think particularly in the case of a parent, and I'll speak with that context, mm. I know firsthand a child nearly always feels guilt, I think, from others I've spoken to when a parent dies, that you could have been there more, you could have been nicer, you could have told them you loved them more. And obviously with my mother, it was an extremely complex relationship because of that absence in my sort of adolescence years. So I think the advice in that scenario is be kind to yourself and don't beat yourself up and remember the, the happy times, make sure you freeze frame those good times because that's what you want to hold on to and that's really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's so important. After a few years of being back in Sydney and after your mum dying, you joined McKinsey. So while at McKinsey, you won a very prestigious award, I think, or you and your team won a very prestigious award. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Oh, yeah. Well, um, it's called the PD Olympics, which stands for Practice Development Olympics. And it's taken, or it certainly was when I was at McKinsey, taken very seriously. And it's a global event. We had been working on a project with a client and obviously all McKinsey projects are confidential. It was um, a telco, but it was actually sort of about how to really get the best out of people. And it was very groundbreaking and very un-McKinsey in style. And so we had put together a presentation and a case, if you like, for the impact of this study. And so it was a team of three of us. That's how the PD Olympics works. Teams of three present their story and their case. And we won the Australian division. And then we went to Asia and we won the regional division. And then we went to California for the global. And this is people from McKinsey offices all around the world convene there. And they're all shortlisted for this practice development. It's knowledge development. Who in the firm has advanced the firm's knowledge and had amazing impact is what it's kind of about. And uh, yeah, we we won there. We won first prize there. That is amazing. Pretty exciting. Yeah, it must have felt incredible. It was, yeah, very exciting, very inspiring. And then two of the three of us on the team uh, left McKinsey within days. It was planned to go and start eBay. Wow. Mm. You joined as a CMO. That must have been such an exciting time because that was what, when was that, early 2000s? No, no, it was the late 90s. Late 90s. So it was the height of the the dot-com boom was sort of unfurling as we were there. And eBay had already launched in the States and then very persistent parties in Australia, investors in Australia, kind of persuaded eBay to come and launch in Australia before really eBay would have otherwise. And because it was already working and it was early days, but you could see eBay in the States was growing very fast. That was uh, the reason, you know, we both chose to go with eBay and literally started from scratch in Australia with a room with no desks or chairs or wiring or anything on day one. Wow. And that must have been, you know, having worked in tech companies where the head office is in a different country, particularly in scale-up mode, that must have been quite challenging. I would imagine you were on calls at stupid o'clock at night. Absolutely. Oh, it was, it was grueling. We knew it was a startup. So absolutely went in with eyes open that this was going to be work crazy hours startup. What I hadn't considered was that being on many, many regular calls at 1 or 2 a.m. and that yeah. sort of thing in the morning, late at night. And um, the other thing was is because they were eBay US had been persuaded to come to Australia, we were constantly having to sort of keep the pressure up with our US colleagues in the nicest possible way because it was no one's fault to just kind of keep Australia on the radar. We hadn't launched. We were trying to get our site built and it was all being built out of the US. So a local competitor had launched in the meantime. So it was – a very high pressure time because you felt like time was running away from you and you felt quite helpless and you couldn't do the things locally that you wanted to be doing because you were completely dependent on everything being built. That actually must have been quite frustrating. It must have felt like you were kind of pushing mud uphill. Yeah. It was quite grueling. And I started to, you know, get health effects from that. And eventually, and it was a really tough decision, I decided that the right decision for me at that point in time was to resign and and I took a break. And I think it's been a bit of a pattern 
in my career, and I think it has been in yours as well, where you kind of work yourself into the ground and you start to get health effects. And I had the same thing happen actually some years later when I had joined the executive team of Sydney Opera House and I started to get health effects. And in fact, there it was a little bit more radical and I collapsed in the street. And, yeah, God. And uh, as you know, it was glandular fever, but I was hospitalized twice yeah. with that. And I think, you know, it's been a real lesson over time is you have to remember these roles are a marathon, not a sprint. And I think those eBay early days, it was the first dot com. It was the first time kind of startups were sexy. I threw too much into it. And there were, there were a few other kind of aspects as well. You know, there were some tensions in the team just because we were working such crazy hours. And so I really hadn't made it a sustainable journey for myself. Yeah, I think that's a really important learning. And I think we both learned that sort of in our 30s, didn't we? Yeah. Was that in your 30s? Yeah, I would think I just, I was just 40 actually when I had glandular fever right. at that role at the Opera House. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I know I, I had glandular fever a couple of times that mm. once went into chronic fatigue. And it really is about recognizing that you are not superhuman and you have to look after yourself. Yeah. That's right. And, um, yeah, so I, you know, I had a break and I did some really fun project work in Europe, creating some other online assets for a different company, but in a sort of a contract way where the hours were a bit more manageable. Yeah. And then the opera house and until I had glandular fever, sort of two or so years in. Yeah. And, but once you got well, you then sort of had a bit of an epiphany, didn't you? Yeah. The epiphany started really with watching um, the founder of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, give a talk. And he talked about all the research he'd done on people's sort of happiness and fulfillment and contentment in life and that the key driver was to have a noble purpose. And so when I had recovered from glandular fever and I needed, I had to leave the opera house, I had to take about six months off. And I then did some consulting work, working for myself, so to speak. But then I knew that the next team and proper job that I took, I really wanted it to have a noble purpose. Yeah. And that noble purpose was what? It turned out to be, I didn't know what it was going to be until I learned about it. It turned out to be uh, generating finances to help fight HIV and AIDS in Africa. Yeah, amazing. And you said that you you didn't know it until you saw the job. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't even a job. It was just a story about the organization being launched. It's really interesting that it sort of came at you and you just suddenly knew that was the one. Yeah, literally. And I really did. I was looking, you know, so I'd started to look. And I think some great advice I'd been given and I share with lots of people, when you don't know what you want to do next, if you can't put a name to the job or the organization, think about the characteristics that matter to you. And so I I did have a list of characteristics. I knew I wanted it to be international. I knew because I was a marketing person by background and training, I wanted it to be or have the potential to be a sexy world-class brand. I knew I wanted to be in the center of the action wherever possible. I had a feeling it was about sort of international poverty in some way. And then I read in March 2006 about this organization that had been announced that it was going to start. They announced it in January at Davos. So it was about six weeks prior they'd announced we were going to create this thing called Product Red. And I read that article and I might have done a little bit of Googling to read more articles of the announcement. And I just, I straight away, I knew 
I just love this about you. Just, <laughs> just once you know, then there is no stopping Greta Thomas. <laughs> Because you have to tell the story about how you actually landed this job because it is so creative. You can hardly believe it. Well, for me at the time and generally, I think the biggest battle is knowing what. And when you finally know what, then figuring out a way to get there is the fun bit for me. And maybe that's because of that kind of determination and persistence and resilience you had to develop with ballet and, and the knockbacks you get inevitably with ballet. So I learned about it and yeah, I left no stone unturned. So basically I did enormous amounts of research and every spare minute I had, I was researching online. There was nothing that was being said about this organization, you know, Product Red, that I wasn't on top of if it was searchable. But I was trying to work out how on earth do I get to someone who's a decision maker. So examples of things I did was um, I got myself on to, into the audience of a talk show in Australia because that host, whose name was Andrew Denton, had recently interviewed Bono. And Bono was the co-founder of Product Red from U2. I got myself into the audience. I stayed back. I spoke to Andrew Denton at the end. He gave me his producer's name or email and I was able to email, but they couldn't really help me. They might have given me the email of someone and... And I might have emailed and nothing happened. So that was one example of something I tried. I also bought a ticket to a conference where Bob Geldof was speaking because I knew he was great mates with Bono. And I managed to get backstage before he'd finished. And that's my journalist training coming into play there and knew where he would come out and sort of doorstopped him and said, Mr. Geldof, I really want to work for Product Red. You know, if you could possibly get, and I gave my card with a few key messages on the back. It was so ridiculous in hindsight, but I had to do it. It was like in the moment I thought I have to give this a go. I can't go home tonight and know that I didn't try. And so I know that Bob Geldof walked away with my business card. I'm sure it went straight into the bin probably afterwards because nothing came of that. But I at least I could sleep soundly that night. And basically I kept a diary and I there was no stone I left unturned for any day ever in that period of time between March and September. Eventually, because of the McKinsey brilliant network, I did get the email of someone from McKinsey who'd advised Bono and Bobby Shriver in sort of starting up and what the strategy for Product Red could be. And from her, I eventually got an email of the president of Red. And so in about early July or late June of 2006, I finally felt I knew enough and I had the email of someone who was a decision maker that I could email. And so I did. Wow, what a journey. And then you emailed her. Yes. And then I think you told a little porky. Well, that is kind of correct in the sense I said I was going to be. As in in a little lie. A little porky is a little lie, just in case that's a very English term. Right. Red was based in LA at the time in Los Angeles. And so I said I was going to be in Los Angeles in a couple of weeks' time. And was she available to me? And I gave sort of a, a ballpark week for memory of possible days I was there. And once we had secured a date and a time to meet in Los Angeles, I then picked up the phone and I booked so an airfare to yeah, go. Yeah, especially. So the little lie was the fact that you weren't due in LA. Correct. You just said that you were. I went specially. Yeah. And I love that. And it's it was just so good. And as it happened, the meeting, I, I hadn't told her that, but it was my birthday. The meeting was on my birthday. So it's very, you know, kind of memorable. And I just knew it was meant to be. Yeah. So things played out from there and that's July 
And then in September, I moved to London to head up the UK office of Product Red. Absolutely amazing. So you were based in London and Geneva for Red for about four years, I think. Yeah, nearly four. Yeah. And you traveled back and forth to Africa a lot. But one of the really amazing things that you got to do as part of your journey in Red was to produce a documentary called The Lazarus Effect, which for listeners you can find on YouTube and you can have a watch and it's really quite amazing. Can you tell us a bit about what the documentary is about and how the experience impacted you personally? Yeah, so my role in Geneva was sort of like kind of chief storyteller for Red in terms of, you know, what is the life like of someone living with HIV and what difference does the medicine make? And I didn't produce the Lazarus Effect. Lazarus Effect. I was a co-producer um, and there was a big team of us, but it would be um, definitely an inaccuracy to say it was just me. It was a big team. And we were also lucky enough to have Oscar-winning Spike Jones as the director on the documentary. Incredible. But the whole idea, and I'd done, if you like, non-film versions already in with a professional photographer we'd gone and we'd captured the effect that the AIDS medication has on people's recovery. And it's known as the Lazarus effect. And Lazarus in the Bible was risen from the dead. And I had gone time and time again with the photographer to HIV and AIDS clinics to meet people who were about to begin the AIDS medication, the antiretroviral therapy for the first time. And they were desperately ill in many cases and also incredibly skeletal looking. And then I would go back with the photographer three months later. It was an extraordinary experience, very confronting because not everybody can survive, obviously, Mm. when you're that sick. But those that do survive are like Lazarus and start to make a recovery in 90 days and start to get back to normal. And it's pretty incredible with this antiretroviral therapy, which is taking usually two pills a day. It was life-changing and I had resisted taking on the Geneva-based storytelling role because my previous role heading up the UK office was dealing with the big execs in American Express and The Gap and all of the amazing global brands that are partners and, and were partners with Red. And I thought, you know, I wanted to be where the serious business was being done. And in the end, I took this storytelling role And it's so funny that I resisted it because it was by far the best thing I've ever done in terms of impact, feeling so privileged to meet these people and to see how lucky I am and to put all of my day-to-day problems into perspective. What an incredible legacy to have, you know, to actually have co-produced something like that, I think is just phenomenal. Do you see it that way? I hadn't ever seen it that way until you say it. I think because it's such a collective team effort and I was... It's got your name on it. (laughs) Yeah, it does have my name on it. Own it. it. (laughs) I think what I see is the emotional journey of the people we filmed and I can't separate the stories of Concilia and Connie and little Boalia from anything else. Incredible. Well, I'm going to change the subject a little bit now because... We've talked about lots of different career transitions that you've been through and we haven't even finished yet. And as someone who has moved, you know, many times, can you share with listeners who may themselves be thinking about a career transition? How do you know that you, you want to transition and how do you go about it? I think I'll start with how I go about it because I I think, you know, sometimes 
knowing that you want to make a career transition isn't always clear. You might know you want to do something different from what you're already doing. Take red. I mean, that was a tough career transition because I knew the global financial crisis came and I knew I wanted to get back to Australia ultimately because I'd been traveling 70 to 80% of my time. So I knew I needed to leave ultimately. I'd had these amazing experiences and, and then there were budget cuts with the GFC, but I didn't know what. So again, it's, I think coming up with characteristics of the role you want. And in fact, in that example, it turned out that no role could immediately fill the gap or the extraordinary experiences that Red had given me. Yeah. One minute I would be at Davos. The next I was with Scarlett Johansson in Rwanda. The next I was filming a documentary that debuted on HBO and had this amazing glamorous opening in New York. So I ended up consulting initially uh, well, f- actually for quite a long time because I realized no one role would fill the shoes that Red had filled. And for me, I don't think of transitioning across industries or types of role, perhaps as big a deal as some. And I think that all goes back to the fact that I didn't finish high school and I don't have an undergraduate degree, but I have an MBA and I've worked at you know, the prestigious management consultancy, McKinsey. So what I learned, because I didn't know any better, was that I've learned that there's more than one pathway to get where you want to go. And I think that actually it was an advantage not to finish high school and go to uni because what that instills in one subconsciously is that you take small, incremental, predictable steps After year 11, you know there's year 12. After year 12, you know there's first year uni, then second year, then third year. Yes, you might have a gap year and all those sort of things. I didn't have that priming. And so I thought nothing of zigging or zagging across sectors if I could make it happen. And I guess I had to be from my ballet days really resourceful and persistent and ingenious in how to get from ballet to being a TV reporter. And so I just kept doing those things. And so I think if you really know where you want to go, then do not take the first no as an answer would be my advice. And make sure you have tried more than one pathway to get to where you want to go. And maybe one pathway has a little windier road to get there, but maybe that's the best way for you. So it's about exploring the alternative ways of getting where you want to go if the traditional way doesn't work. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that you say that, you know, when you go through sort of the traditional education path, it is incremental and you are, you do know where you're going. Yeah. And you have had to be very resourceful. And, you know, one of the things that is just so inspiring working with you is the way that you think about problems and you're such an innovator and you're so creative about the way that you think about things. Thank you. So I I guess now that you've sort of talked about your education, that sort of makes sense. But I I also think you are, I think you're very strategic about your career. Well, some advice I was given quite early on probably resonated and then being a marketer, it made even more sense. And that was particularly in the first third of your career, you really think about the brands you work for. You really think about that foundation of your CV and the foundation of your career and try to get some great experience. Now, obviously, ballet was a bit weird, so that's that yeah. doesn't count. You but got then that, you got that advice after <laughs> ballet probably. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. But you know, sort of so I was mindful of those kinds of things to some degree. And then I guess, you know, I was just hungry and curious. And so challenges are, uh, have always been what drives me to kind of solve a new challenge. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of our wonderful interview together. 
I'm going to ask you the question we always ask. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? I think two things. Be kind to yourself. Don't like, don't drive yourself physically into the ground because that happened on a couple of different occasions. The second thing that I would say, and maybe it's because I didn't start a business career in a normal way because I jumped from ballet and journalism. But in my early career, I would take things very personally. So I would say, don't take things personally. It's not about you. Yeah, that's just so, so important, isn't it? We learn it as we get older, but the sooner we can learn it, the better. Brilliant. Well, Gret, it's such a privilege interviewing you. I mean, it's a, it's a weird experience, but it's a real utter privilege because you are one of the most amazing people and I get to work with you every day. Thank you, Claire. And I'm so glad that you've shared your incredible story with our listeners. So I know you asked me this <laughs> because we always ask our guests this, but how can listeners find you? Well, the same answer that you gave was a, such a good answer. You know, you, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. And then to learn more about us and what we do, go to don'tstopusnow.co. Fantastic. I'm going to make sure that we put a few pickies up on the show notes page so that you can see Greta in her past lives. So with that, thank you so much. I hope you have all enjoyed listening to Greta's amazing story and it's been a joy. Thank you, Claire. You've done a wonderful job. Thank you. Well, I just love your stories, Greta. You know, once you set your mind on something, it's really quite incredible what you can make happen. It's just so inspiring. Oh, thanks, Claire. And you did a great job. You know, I just hope that others are encouraged to keep going and not take their first no or even their first dozen no's for an answer if they believe they're pursuing something that's truly important to them. You know, because what I like to say is where there's a will, there's a way. Well, especially for you. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that I think is really fascinating is that whilst some listeners might think, crikey, you've navigated a lot of career transitions, what's clear to me is that this will be the norm. You know, this is the future of work. So I really think you're ahead of your time, Gret. <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. Thanks, Claire. You know, for me, it's been all about the next challenge and the next learning curve. Yeah, I can see that. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Greta's stories as much as I have. Stay tuned for next week's mini episode on the narratives we tell ourselves. Have a great week, everyone, and stay safe and ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.